Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Okay, today on The Ramble, I am very excited because I think I have been looking forward to having Angela Prater on. When did I first ask you? Uh, pretty much when I started my latest course with you, I think he's like, yeah. can you ask Angela? <laughs> <laughs> can you ask her now? I'm like, ah, I keep forgetting. Uh, and I'll explain why I asked Jana to ask you in the podcast. But let me, okay. let me introduce this lovely, lovely human being that we are with today. And I just should also make a note that my occasional co-host, me. but always, <laughs> always with me, <laughs> partner of wife, Jana, is uh, on the podcast with us today. So Angela's known as a spontaneous songstress and wild adventurer without a flake of flakiness. Angela Prider is an animist healer, somatic counselor, microdosing guide, and retreat facilitator who has been leading transformational gatherings around the world for 25 years. As a creatress of sacred life animism, a spiritual way of living based in mysticism, healing, and folk medicine, she has supported thousands of people to return to the rich terrain of their soul and develop intimate connection with nature and their ancestors. Over the last, last 12 years, the sacred plant teachers have become a central source of support in her personal life. And more recently in her work, she offers one-to-one soul medicine sessions, microdosing support, and psychedelic integration, as well as a deep dive apprenticeship. She has been a guest speaker at Simon Fraser University, the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine, and the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference at the University of British Columbia. Her teachers include, and here I go, <laughs> Dr. Cl- Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes, Estes, Estes Don Martin Pinedo. Pinero Acuna in Peru. I'm just going to go with Blackfoot, el- the Blackfoot elders, yeah. Betsy Bergstrom, and a musician and, um, and a sound healer, Jane Winther. Yeah. All right. We'll get Angela's connecting details at the end of the podcast. But for now, welcome. Hi. Yay. Thanks <laughs> Our, for having me. It's yeah. so good to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I, you know, we're in a bit of a, uh, I don't want to say we're in a way. <clears throat> but we've had opposite ends of the spectrum of life and death in the last 24 hours. So Jana was just at a birth as a doula with her sister. And so we saw life and then we saw, we found our lost cat and found out that her back is broken. And I, there's a, there's a reason I'm telling you this story, not just in case we break down in tears <laughs> midway, but um, we have been offered the, I guess the, we've been given the choice that there's a very, there's about a 5% chance that she can heal the nerves in her back where she no longer has control of her bowels yeah. and, or put her down. Mm. And so the vet mm. was very quick to say, put her down, but you felt differently, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I, I bring this up is because, you know, part of the healing of this would be somatic. Mm. Right. Mm. And, and, and this is sort of off the traditional path of, of what we know as medicine and it's going into a different thing. And so mm. I, I just, I throw that out there and we can talk about it, but I think that maybe the best place to start is just helping 
put some definitions on the table so that when we use them, people know what we're talking about. And maybe we can start with um, animism versus shamanism, as well as what somatic healing is, <laughs> mysticism, these types of things. And, and, and then we can segue into your journey as to how you became an animist healer. Yeah, yeah, for okay. sure. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I'm so glad you're here, Janet. It, it like, helps me to feel more relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and congratulations on your baby. And I'm so sorry to hear about your kitty. But, yeah, I, I, yeah, we must talk about that. And this is a good, it's a good discussion to talk about, you know, what, I- what is animism and when this word shamanism is so popular in our world and why a few years ago I made this choice after, you know, describing myself as a shamanic practitioner or a shamanic healer for so long and then switched to animism. And so, first of all, just to explain that this word shaman comes from the Tungus tribe in Siberia. And so the people in Siberia and Northeast Asia and then further west near Mongolia um, shamanism is actually their religion, and it's called Tengarism. And so uh, that term, Tengarism, means the honoring of spirits. So I think what really, when I sort of did this deep dive into using or not using this word shamanism, even though it's probably way better for my SEO or <laughs> my business. <laughs> Hashtag shamanism. Yeah, right. <laughs> shamanism yeah. Right, and I had a URL had a URL for 20 years with the word shamanism in, in it and I never had the problems of you know <laughs> that I have these days but it's totally cool the indigenous pe- people in these areas they faced like you know as so many indigenous people around the world all of the colonization and all of the invasion and really the near extinction of many of their tribes losses of language traditions all of those things and particularly with indigenous Siberians um they had to deal with conflict with uh, the Tibetan Buddhists for centuries. And then, of course, um, you know, the whole repression under the Soviet Union meant that they could not have their religion. They weren't free to have their religion. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, there's been this revival with Tengarism, which means that, you know, they are really focused on preserving and reclaiming and reviving their their religion, which does involve having shamans. And shamans are, they're spiritual specialists. Like, that's what they are. It's like if you went to your GP and they're like, oh, yeah, you've got something going on with your heart. I'm going to send you to the cardiologist. It would be like you'd be talking to a member of the community and they're like, oh, yeah, you've got something going on spiritually. You need to go see the shaman. So there is criteria for being a shaman. Like, you must be called by the spirits that's integral or it's in your family and you actually don't have a choice. And Mm. if you try to steer away from that choice, quite often you end up really unwell. Mm. And there's years and years and years, like decades of training, you know, a lifetime of training with the elders. And it's the elder shamans who decide that you're, you're ready to be a shaman and that they give you that term. So it's an honorific term and what comes with it is the, res- the responsibility of the spiritual well-being of your community. So it's a huge responsibility, really, when you think about it. So this term, though, shamanism, is really interesting because that's a term that was coined by Western anthropologists 
who went to these places, who observed these practices of the shaman doing their work. And then as they traveled to other places and they noticed that there were spiritual healers who were traveling to uh, the unseen realms to receive guidance, to receive healing for the good of the community, for the good of an individual, then those Western anthropologists were the ones that said, oh, these people are doing shamanism. Mm. But if you go to Africa or Australia or Ireland or Romania, they do not use the word shaman. Or Peru, they don't use the word shaman. They don't use the word shamanism. It comes from that specific place. Interesting. So we've just associated shamanism with the Amazon, with these other parts of the world that it, it, it has no, we just kind of catch all it. Yeah. Mm. And I think really when it comes down to it, it saddens me because it means that the other cultures, it's basically a whitewashing. Mm. So because other cultures have different names for their healers rather than the mainstream learning that this person is this from this is what they would be called in their culture, mm -hmm. then all of those other terms and names, you know, like curandera, curandero, you mm. know, for sure is still is happening. Jamie calls him, Jamie Alvarez calls himself a, a curandera, curandero. Yeah. And, but in the Andes, they would be called like an alto maseoc, a pampa maseoc, uh, kurak, like other words, right? And in the old Irish tradition that I am connected with, the, the, the woman, the healing woman, would be called the banfasa, like the woman of spiritual knowledge. I like that word. I like that mm -hmm. word too. Where, mm -hmm. uh, if I may interrupt, I, like where, if, if, if it's in so many of these cultures, Siberia, it's in Ireland, it's in South America, this spiritual healer or spiritual healing, mm -hmm. that's integral to the community structure. Mm -hmm. And anthropologists, you know, I guess you could say Western scientists, mm -hmm. have accepted that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Where did the line get drawn historically where we stopped accepting that as a, because you don't, you, you don't grow up here in the West and they're, they're, you know, like you said, you have your heart specialist, but you do not have your spiritual healer. So no. at some point that dropped away. Yeah, I mean, that would be with a new religion because the spiritual healer became the priest mm -hmm. or the minister or the, you know, the pastor. Mm -hmm. That would have been... So the, 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 that's, that's why we had the witch burnings. We were just talking about that for, you know, <laughs> they got... Because the old women were the ones that had the wisdom and the power and the temperance mm -hmm. and the experience with the healing so, uh, and the men too, but that's why, you know, they got wiped out to take the power out of that because those religions, um, and this is a big part of my work and why I love teaching um, animism as a path is because it's empowering. It's, you know, so often, you know, and Jenna would have heard me say this and so many of my students, you know, they might meet a spiritual ally that is an animal and the first thing that I say to them is, do not Google that. <laughs> Don't look it up in an oracle book. Like, go into a trance state and meet that animal ally and ask why it's come to you. But we are so programmed that the church has the answer, like with spirituality, right? That this person out there has the answer, that this book has the answer, that this whatever has the answer. And what's happening with that is our own intuition is getting like dulled mm -hmm. 
how, yeah. you know? Well, we, you're absolutely right. I mean, we see it, right? Because we've gone from the religion of God or uh, um, to the religion of science to the religion of technology. And all of these things will have the answer. And we're, we're so faced, you know, we've just been through the science as a religion, you know, uh, singularity. But now with, with uh, AI, literally the, the, the rhetoric is it will have all the answers. Literally, that is, that is literally what it is because all that humans have said and done is on the internet and it will be able to take all of that. It does, yeah. Right, you, and give it back. You probably, me. if you went and yeah. chat GPT'd, you know, animism, you probably, it's probably already harvested, you know, my 25 <laughs> years of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they're, and they're scrambling to, they're, stra- they're scrambling to realize what, like, what the copyright legalities around that are. But, you know, we're not, we're not here to talk about copyright. We're here to talk about what are the spiritual yeah. <laughs> issues yeah. with the constant outsourcing of our intuition yeah, or even our ability to, to try and, and uh, think for think first yeah. as opposed to just get the answer first. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm curious, like, what do you see with that? Where, where, like what happens when somebody, for, they Google it versus they just try and sit with it. Like, mm-hmm. What is the difference between those two things for the person who's having this experience? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I was thinking about getting together and and us having this chat today, I was thinking, you know, what is it about animism that is has kept me so passionate for so long, right? Because I just never tire of this path, this practice. And I think it's because it gives us roots, mm. but it allows us to explore. So this term animism comes from this, I think it's like proto-Indo-European root A-N-E or A-N. So that word is in so many, if you think about the Greek of like animus, anima. If you think about it, I think, this, I think the Sanskrit is like, um, I'm going to look it up because I don't want to make no, a mistake. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a Greek term animos or as well that means wind, um, this old Norse word called anda, which means um, to breathe, and then the old Irish anam means the soul. So this A-N-E root is in so many cultures around the world that means breath, wind, soul. And so when I think about animism and I think about like all the theisms, right? Monotheism says there's one God. Atheism says there's no God. Pantheism says there's many God. And then there's, um, you know, polytheism says there's many gods. And then pantheism says there's one God. And when I think about animism, I'd say, I I know that there would probably be scholars out there disagreeing with me. But for me, it's pantheistic in nature because what we're saying is that we have reverence and connection to this breath of life that is, you know, the oneness that is moving through everything. And so it's so interesting that technology is this singularity thing. It's this whole, the oneness, the oneness, the oneness. However, the reality is that we are, you know, as human beings, uh, we we are beings that are made of the earth, right? And the stars and everything, but we're organic beings, right? And this place that we live, this great, 
gigantic home called Mother Earth, it's not a hierarchical structure. Like as much as we think that we're at the top of the hierarchy, it's very obvious with the state of the world right now that we're not. Like we've kind of fucked it up basically. So um, in some ways I see this whole like AI world as almost being like, oh, dare I say this, it's almost like an escape. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, well, I don't have to sit here at my computer and figure out the fucking words I've got to say, so I'll just check out this thing. Um, or um, I need, you know, I can, I, it's, it's this easy way out. Even though I have explored G- chat GPT and I've actually found the greatest use for it is I get it to ask me questions so I can use my own brain. Mm-hmm. Ask me 10 questions about animism, mm-hmm. right? So it can be a tool in, in, in that way. But I also worry about it just going back to whiteness because I've read stuff about how AI is also like when you think about, you know, language differences like slang, like uh, black language, like indigenous language, um, if we end up with just this like this beige language or this white kind of way of, of languaging everything, then we lose the diversity of our world. And once we lose the diversity, because we know this from nature, like we will perish. Because mm-hmm. diversity is what makes us strong. Mm-hmm. Um, difficulties, uh, initiation is what makes us strong, resilient human beings. Mm-hmm. So the more cushy we get, the more comfortable we get, the weaker we get, mm-hmm. you know? That's a really interesting point. And, and, I, and it was something I had intended to ask you around around this idea of rites of passage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jan and I think about it for our kids and even for ourselves because it, many cultures have had it. I don't know how many still have it, but this idea that it's almost like um, Joseph Campbell's hero journey, hero's journey, right? Where you have to go out and you have to kind of face mm-hmm. these things. <clears throat> you no longer have to face them, you know? And, and we have this abundance, I guess you could say, of what's called angry white men syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And angry white men syndrome is essentially uh, men who are, are sort of got all this pent up energy and, and where do they use it and how, how does that energy get processed within them? And mm-hmm. one of the ways that it gets processed is porn and another way that it gets processed is action movies, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And that these things actually kind of provide the same stimulus as if you just John wicked mm. killed 375 people in the last hour. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And where, 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 what they, what they're, there's a lot of this kind of new in, in, in the field of like, they're trying to understand what's happened because men used to go off to war mm. or they used to have these very hard mm. initiations um, where they would challenge themselves mm. and, and some men would die mm. in that process mm. and they wouldn't uh, all just be, you know, kind of hoping for things to come to them. They'd have to earn it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, freedom has given us the freedom from having to do that, but then we're without it. And, and so we're trying to figure out what it is that gives that to our girls. Like, you know, how do they, how, how do they face the world in a world that is completely designed for convenience mm-hmm. and ease? Mm-hmm. I, mean, you, I mean, the entire school system is going to be restructured around, around AI. Yeah. Right. Where you, because how can you stop a kid from writing their paper on with yeah, AI? Yeah. You can't. Right. So it's who's going to be the best at using AI. But you know what? Like, 
I mean, there are some things in place from what I've read. Like Google can now tell if something's come straight off of AI. Yeah. And with, because uh, my daughter's in university and there are ways that, you know, they are detecting that for sure. But I love that you bring up like, like the white man anger piece, you know, and there's plenty of white woman out anger out there too, because I mean, this structure of patriarchy that we've been living in, it is, it is gradually, you know, dismantling because, you know, white men are really the minority in the world, right? And, you know, part of the conditioning of patriarchy, because everyone loses, everybody loses, right? Because, you know, men were going off to war. They didn't have a choice in that, <laughs> you know? It's like everybody left behind, all those children who lost their fathers or that their fathers came back and were never the same again, and then you have multi-generational trauma. It's, you know, it's hurt everybody, <coughs> right? And so I think... And it's recent. I mean, we're yeah. only talking oh, yeah. maybe 100 years where we have... And hardly. I mean, if you fact, not everybody went to the world wars. Oh, yeah. But many people did. Yeah. So really, it's only since then. It's very, yeah. That we've had to readjust. Yeah. I mean, my dad was a child in the war, but he has PTSD from growing up in the Second World War as a child. Mm -hmm. And my mom, too. So I think that, I think it's like anything, in all honesty. It's like when you have power and when you have freedom, you don't understand that with that comes entitlement. Mm -hmm. And so you just don't understand when you're walking through the world and everything is like given to you that 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 actually everybody should have that because we're all human beings. So it's scary, I think, as well for some men uh, because identity revolves around that. So who are you? And no wonder there's you know, video games where you're killing everybody or pornography because they're, some, they're the things you're allowed to do. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to fucking fight. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes you a man. And yet, you know, when you look at, you know, that, you know, men have much more depression and loneliness and suicide rates and all of these things, obviously the system that has been set up for them that is supposed to give them all this freedom and power, it's actually fucking them over. Yeah, I, I'm very uncomfortable with, like, I'm, I'm on both sides of this because I was a competitive runner. Yeah. And it, as it messed me up a little bit being so focused on winning, but at the same time, when you take out the competitiveness, yeah. then you no longer have the resistance yeah. right, that we, yeah. we need to bash against and crash against and see what we're made of. Well, and I think this is when we're talking about, like, the healthy masculine, mm -hmm. right? Because... Even as a woman, I need to develop that part of me. I need to be pushed to the edge so that I can get that acetylcholine, acetylcholine happening so that I can actually be under enough stress that I can have some sort of positive change within myself. And I think that this is where rites of passage and in particular initiation come into play because what we're really talking about in some ways is that warrior energy, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, even... Here's so many cultures around the world, initiation and rites of passage are to support the men to become warriors. I mean, even in the Congo, like tens of thousands of years, they've been using psychedelics or mushrooms to train their warriors to fearlessly go and, and fight, right? So, but there is a difference between, I think there's a difference between rite of passage and initiation, mm -hmm. 
right? So I think that rite of passage is, you know, our kids' first day at school or, you know, um, it's like, okay, I'm no longer at home, you know, with my parents. Um, I'm going to, to school and this is a new stage. It's a new chapter of life. Mm-hmm. But I really think, for example, that having a baby is an initiation. Absolutely. Right? Because what happens with initiation compared to rites of passage is that there's an ego death. You know, you do not have control. Yes, you're not going to be the same person that you were before you gave birth. But, and you're not going to be the same person afterwards, that's for sure, because the responsibility is dramatically different. Mm -hmm. But you, there is something that is so much bigger than you happening. And you have to set aside your ego and surrender to that process and allow the death of the ego in order to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that sadly that, you know, you know, kids go to university, for example, and then we get these experiences of like hazing, that hazing is the initiation that if you survive that, but that's not, that's just toxic, abusive violence, Yeah, you know? So it's, it's twisted because we're dealing with the shadow of these things. If, if, if rites of passage and initiation is not out in the world in a conscious way, then you're going to get the shadow of it, mm-hmm. you know? Did you want to? Add anything on the initiation of childbirth? Uh, Yes, actually. So when you were talking about rites of passage versus initiation, I was thinking in my mind how rites of passage seem like, like you're still the same self. You're just being challenged in different ways. And initiation, like you said, is ego death. And then I think you said something like you can still be the same self, but you're having a death of ego. And I... I have found that you're not the same self. You're almost stepping into a new self. You are, yeah. And that's the initiation is the death of ego and self and the stepping into the new in a way. So I was curious if you've... So I wanted to say that birth is an initiation that is easy to target because it's something that happens in our culture still. Mm -hmm. But other (laughs) rites of initiation in our culture are hard to determine and hard to define. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the things that Joel and I wanted to speak about was... Um, what initiations still exist mm-hmm. and if they do or don't exist, how do we bring them back in? Like how do we incorporate that level of spiritual initiation into our lives in a way that is, we can ride it properly yeah. and like yeah. understand what is happening and be guided in a way that is nurturing to us. Because mm-hmm. I find that like besides birth, which is kind of shell shocking to people who don't know what it's like and don't witness people ahead of them going through it. Mm-hmm. We don't, I wouldn't have anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that, I think that, I really think that when I think about raising my own daughter or raising kids or supporting clients or students or things like that, that I think that the difference for me anyway between religion and spirituality is that you know, religion sort of says, this is God, this is how it's done, this is the dogma. But spirituality says we need to look at the myth. We need to look at the symbology. We need to look at, uh, you know, if you're sitting in your yard and a hummingbird comes to visit you, let's look more at that. It's not like, oh my God, that's so sweet. It's like, let's look. Like, what were you thinking at the moment that hummingbird came? 
What is that connection about? So when we begin to learn how to live in in this understanding of um, Clarissa Pingola Estes calls the river beneath the river. There's the, the river, the story of your mythic journey that is running all the time that you're in the world, right? So initiation is life, death, rebirth. And of course, you know, on a very simple level, we go through that with every breath that we have. But there are times in people's lives where they go through initiatory phases. So somebody, for example, um, you know, in my late 20s, I hit a very, very rough alcoholic bottom. I had to get sober and that was a freaking death of my ego. Like, because everything that I was up until that point, everything that I was doing with my life where I thought I was doing so well, and that I was completely in denial, I had to let everything die in order to save myself and then start a new life, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about, that's why I think often when I meet people in like recovery communities, they're like this, like such an array of people, but they're so spiritual because they completely understand what it's like to like lose everything and then have to rebuild it. Sometimes initiation can be like when you build a business. And I think of all the people who lost their businesses in COVID, And, you know, you've put decades of work into something and, you know, it's, it's your, it's your lifeblood and then you lose it and you have to, you have to let go. Well, I I had that. Right. I lost a business during COVID. Right. uh, Yeah. That was my first time in 15 years of facing bankruptcy insolvency. And it was, it was a mindfuck. Yeah. You know, because you're letting go of the the thing that you put on the never going to happen to me list, bankruptcy yeah. or lose a business, right? Because that, what does that, how does that reflect on me as a human being? Yeah. And then when you get to the other side of it, you're like, oh, not at all. It right. doesn't, it doesn't reflect on me at all. But to like cross that line is yeah. a thousand foot journey that is, is, is really just one simple step. Totally. And then you, and then it reshifts. Why did I just spend 15 years worrying about this thing happening because once the thing happens it's uh and so it was a gift at the same time it you know i lost money we lost money people lost it, that's not great but yeah i'm just glad yeah uh, one one more little ego death of the many <laughs> i think you embrace it a little better than a lot of people though but i didn't but not leading up to it right leading up to it i but that's where, and we'll get into it, that's where the work of having learned how to have an ego death, mm. but helps you see the value in it. But even so, I still fell into my own trap. Mm-hmm. I still was walking in, leading up to it, I was still in my own way, the whole mm. entire way. Mm. You know, I just I just wanted to just go back just a, mm-hmm. a hair oh, on- Oh, I did too, I have another question for you. On <laughs> the, When you mentioned the hummingbird Mm. and then seeing the hummingbird and then asking what that thought was in your head at the same time and and what's the symbolism and and trying to connect the dots. Mm. I know plenty of people who would say that's an utter waste of time. And having touched on that and seeing you with, you know, living that way, it's not like what does somebody gain because that's not what it's about. It's what does somebody, what can somebody learn by just having that level of, of awareness and presence and curiosity for that little interaction and then all the little interactions that happen for them. 
Well, I think this is one of the beauties of, you know, when I was speaking earlier about AI and I was saying, you know, we're earth beings and we need to have that connection to the earth because, you know, when we have those roots and we understand where we come from, then we have all these other relationships going on. So I think that the beauty of that is that when you have, and this is, this is what got lost, right? This is what got lost with colonization, even with our own, you know, ancestors from the Western Isles or Europe or whatever, right? Is that the old ways of being connected to the earth, the old ways of understanding nature that get passed down to you through your family, the tradition, because the tradition is the roots, right? So the tradition is like the framework or the protocol for your spiritual life. So what we would call that in the world of animism or shamanism is we might call it a cosmology or cosmovision. It's a framework. It's a spiritual framework. So if I was to speak to somebody, for example, a Coast Salish person about, oh, you know, a hummingbird that came to me from their culture, they may go, oh, that's because da-da-da-da-da. And yet in the, the cosmology that I work with or um, that might be a completely different thing. So if a hummingbird came to visit me, mm-hmm. for me, the hummingbird is the teacher of, you know, the long epic journey of my b- migration to experience the sweetness of life. Mm-hmm. So sometimes what I often say to people when they're going through hard times, when they're in the bitter part of, you know, of the spiral of life, I say, make sure you keep an eye out for the sweetness because uh, spirit will send you the sweetness as a, as a soothing and a healing balm. So it can happen. You can be like heartbroken, like you can be in the midst of a breakup or, you know, the loss of a pet or something like that. And if you're tuned in and connected and have that consciousness yeah, the hummingbird will come to visit to say, look how beautiful I am. Or mm-hmm. all of a sudden you turn around in your, your yard and those flowers are blooming because life is saying to you, we've got you, we've got you. Mm-hmm. So I think that when we're living in that mythic way, the river beneath the river, when we know that we are connected to everything in this great web of all these luminous all these luminous threads, right, with all of this energy moving back and forward, then it sustains us. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're not just like uh, we don't need to distract away from life because mm-hmm. we're more resilient. We can face things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I uh, I I always tell people you don't even have to attach meaning to it. Yeah. Because if if all it did was bring you right back into the present moment. Yeah. Of how beautiful it is to be alive, then it did all it needed to do, right? Yeah. And, and on, I guess on that same thread, you know, we have a relative who their mother loved hummingbirds and their mother died. And every time they see a hummingbird, it's just a reminder of their mom. Yeah. And, I, and, 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 and a feeling, I don't think the feeling's literal. I don't think they literally think their mom's coming in to check and say hi, mm. but they get the feeling that, their mother's coming in. Oh, and she probably is. is. <laughs> and she probably is. Yeah. I, and I would, I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah. And many people can't make that jump, right? Yeah, but yeah. they still get the benefit of it. Yeah, it's true. Right? It's true. It's like so many people ask me, 
Like, how do I know what I'm seeing, like, in a journey or in a, in a ceremony? How do I know that it's real? And I'm like, well, is, is it helping you? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, so does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> right? But it's our, this is our way of our default mode network, like our ego is like, we just got to figure it out. Yeah. But we don't. Yeah. Yeah. Love you. You said you had a question. Yeah. And I just thought of something else too. Right. But I, I actually wanted to ask you about your journey to becoming a shaman mm-hmm. and then animism because you had mentioned that most people are either called or they're initiated as a right of their family line. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what your call was. Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't call myself a shaman. And there's this <laughs> saying out there that if somebody calls themselves a shaman, you should run the other way. So, <laughs> but yeah, like an, an animist healer or a bun fussa. Oh God, I think... Honestly, I think I just have the typical story. I have the typical wounded healer story. Like, yeah. it's just classic. It's, you know, grew up in a family with trauma and surrounded by addiction and reached my... But I also grew up, like, Catholic Catholic church, Catholic school. And I grew up as a child, like, having very vivid dreams, a very deep, deep connection to nature, but also, like, seeing shit. You know, and I think that the thing about the Catholic Church was. Do, do you do you want to just elaborate on seeing shit? Yeah. Everyone's <laughs> so, um, like, well, "What did she see?" <laughs> yeah. Well, like when I would be going to sleep at night, mm-hmm. I would be in that place between awake and sleep, and I would have I would have visions that I would say kind of scary, mm-hmm. and I've often thought, "Well, is that like was that my trauma? Was that what was going on?" But if I'd have been living in a family, you know, maybe in a different culture, I would have gone to somebody. Right. Yeah. This is what's happening for me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or because in our culture, they would just say, well, you've got a strong imagination. But like, yeah, oh, it's just a bad dream. Yeah. You'll be OK. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I would see like, yeah, I would see dead people like. But I was just terrified, like I could not watch scary movies about ghosts and stuff like that. And for a long time, I wrote off that part of me. And I think that that's what actually contributed deeply to my drinking. Mm. Because I think that alcohol and drugs really numbed that and blocked it off. I mean, I didn't have any place to go with that at all. And then sort of by the time, you know, I was in my early 20s, I was already had like a skin condition and an ulcer because of my stress and anxiety and PTSD. So I went into therapy at 23. Are you in, where are you at this point? I was in Australia. You're in Australia. Yeah. And then I was just in, you know, I did the geographical cure. I was just like, I cannot be with myself. I'll go to Canada, get a work visa. And my aunt had lived here for a number of years when I was a very small child. So I'd already had this connection with Canada And then, uh, you know, by the time I arrived here, like I was here less than a year when I had hit my alcoholic bottom and was, you know, in recovery and going through that process. And I think a couple of things happened. Like when I really look at like, well, what what were the things that happened? One thing that happened was that I was very new. I don't even know if I was sober, like maybe a month, you know, 30 days. (laughs) Um, And I was in this like Jungian group therapy and the therapist led us on this guided visualization and you know we went into this trance state and I just went into that state so easily right 
And the next thing I know, I did not hear her voice. I was not going wherever she was going. I was not there. And I had this very specific, vivid, like, vision or journey. And what happened, I'll tell you this because cool, but um, but I, I was on this beach and all along the beach there were all what looked like covered graves and there were these people standing there, like, I don't know, three or four people, mostly women, I think, and an older woman and they just, like, embraced me. And when I was in this experience, like, I was crying. Like, they were just, like, I still get choked up. And then they had this big fire there and they hugged me and loved me up and then they threw me in the fire. And then I just like, you know, they're like, stay in there, you need to burn. <laughs> and, <I'm> like, <laughs> and I just, you know, I honestly think I was so newly sober and I was so freaking desperate. I mean, I've completely burned down my life and I was, I mean, my ego was like already shot to pieces anyway. And I let myself be burned and then they kind of reform, reformed me. And then they said like, and I said, what are all these graves on the beach? And they're like, oh, they're all the parts of you that we need to heal. Whoa. And all the like, shadow. Just the parts that you'd put into I the buried, shadow. You yeah. buried, yeah. And all the parts of my soul that I had lost and yeah. fragmented and exiled. And this is, um, this is without medicine. Yeah. Right? This is without a, a, yeah. any plant medicine. Yeah. And I, I didn't that, even know the word like yeah. shamanism. And I think that that's really important because we're really falling into the same trap with plant medicine as we are with everything. We're yeah. now, it's the thing. But the first time, the first three times I met you, we didn't, there was no medicine. There was nothing. We just sat and you did a, um, a guided journey for us. And I can't say that I was as ego suspended as you were <laughs> there, but it was still healing. Yeah. And you can heal without the thing 100%, right yeah so please continue i, I just yeah, wanted no to problem say that. yeah so they said to me like i later understood that these were ancestors and what had happened what had occurred was a shamanic dismemberment dismemberment it was a classic shamanic dismemberment that and they said you need to keep coming back to us and so i was like okay and when i mm. came out of that I did stay behind and kind of talk to the therapist afterwards because I was like, I don't know what, you know, what happened, but this happened. And she said, yeah, yeah, you need to you know, take note of that. That's a pretty big thing. And I just discovered that I could go into like this trance state and go and talk to them every day. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I did because I was freaking desperate. Like my life was burned to the ground. So I would go in and this old woman would be there. A lot of the times Jesus would be there. Mary Magdalene would be there. And they would like do psychic surgery. And later I understood that I was experiencing soul retrieval and animals would be with me. And I just got into this practice of what I now understand as being journeying. But I didn't know it at the time. And that was just kind of like my practice. I had one friend that I talked to about it. I just... There's no way I was going to tell anybody else because it was so freaky. <laughs> but you know what? I got I, what I got out of that was like it was helping me. Mm -hmm. And then about six months later, somebody took me to the sweat lodge. They're like, "You need help." And I went to the sweat lodge. I was going to therapy, and I found in that place, in that womb, that it was a place that was big enough for my pain. Mm. And now, when I look back, I'm like, "Of course!" Like the sweat lodge keepers, of course, the, 
you know, the Squamish elders, were, and you know, were like, of course you can have your pain here, like, <laughs> you know, but they really held me and cared for me and, and like laughed at me a lot, which were, I really needed. Yeah. Like, and I think that going there, I, and I only went for about six months. And then I just, you know, I followed the trail, right? And I just, I think I came to actual like shamanism um, about seven years later. And I went and did a course with like the Foundation of Shamanic Studies in the States. And, um, and then I went, I'd, I'd already gone back to school and I was working in social services as a therapist, as a counselor. And then I did training in like soul retrieval and psychopomp, te- you know, helping people, you know, death and dying and, and then, um, you know, my practice, my counseling practice, I had my daughter and I was just working part time. And then I, had, I was like, I think I'm going to try seeing a few clients. Right. Mm. So I was doing this kind of, you know, counseling. And um, and then I started to do this like spiritual healing work with people and it was helping. And then things just exploded and I left my full time job and then I was just inundated with people and then I kind of got burned out, like, really quick. Like, you cannot do, like, eight journeys in a day. Like, mm-hmm. your third eye just gets blown <laughs> to smithereens. And then that's – I had already been in somatic therapy myself for some time. And uh, uh, the, the woman who was teaching that at the Canadian Foundation for Trauma Research and Education, she said, you need to come and do this training because it's going to fit perfectly with your spiritual healing. Mm. Angela, we mm. didn't we didn't define somatic healing. Yeah. Can you just define that? Yeah, so somatic healing is or somat- now, you know, somatic experiencing Peter Levine is, you know, really popular. He he really created this work. Uh, but it's really this understanding that when we go through traumatic events or overwhelming events that we cannot that it that, that are too much for us that that excess you know your body creates excess fight or flight energy mm-hmm. um it creates a lot of fight or flight energy in case like your kid is stuck and you need to lift the car you know whatever it is that's what your body's doing but if those experiences overwhelming experiences don't get resolved that excess fight or flight gets stuck in your nervous system mm-hmm. right so that's why we end up with these um, unresolved traumas or this inability to regulate. And regulating really just means I've got sympathetic activation and now I'm going to regulate to kind of um, to take the lid off the kettle and just let that steam out and then come back to a place of homeostasis. Mm-hmm. And we don't. Yeah. regulate as often as we should. You know, we, we regulate with a glass of wine yeah. <laughs> or a joint, which, again, they, I mean, those are both lovely things when at, at certain times, but but we never feel like we have the time to regulate, I've no, found. And we, and we don't, it's something that sometimes we have to learn to do. Like, it's fine that you're regulating with a glass of wine or a joint if you're also, like, maybe yawning and tingling and twitching and laughing you know and your body your nervous system is actually found a a path of a path to release the energy Mm -hmm. yeah but um and it's not the same as going for a run it's not the same as screaming into your pillow you know moving into a parasympathetic state requires like sometimes we need to kind of slow things down a bit and this again this is like a silly question but 
it just popped up when you said that. Is it is it as simple as I'm just going to watch a comedy on Netflix and smoke a joint and laugh versus I need the the elders in Squamish to laugh at me? Like, is, yeah. it, is it the same? Do you need both? Is one totally placebo, whereas the other ones really work? You know what I mean? Whereas do we get into this thing where I get I get into this thing where I really shun things like Netflix and I really shun things like from the machine as, as natural ways of healing myself. Mm. Whereas maybe they, if they do the trick, they do the trick. And I lean towards things like I need to go see Angela or I need to go sit in a sweat lodge or I need to do something. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're kind of comparing apples and oranges, yeah. you know, like, like I love my Netflix <laughs> <laughs> because for me it's like decompression. You know, for me, it's like, like all of the screen world is, it's kind of dissociative really, right? Like people, like it's, the people are just saying, I need to dissociate for a while. I, I just need to like numb out and be in another reality and like not have to feel and think and all of those kinds of things. I need to escape and that's fine. I mean, consciously escaping, I think is a good thing, right? We, we need to do it. Yet, um, I think as far as, you know, regulating our nervous system, that might work for some people. But I think when you have trauma or you have, and you've got to remember that trauma for every single person is different yeah. because everybody's nervous system is unique and everybody has different levels of resilience. And um, so what's overwhelming for one person is not overwhelming for another person, right? But I think, I do think... For example, with myself, you know, I'm a highly, highly sensitive person. I can feel the difference between, oh, man, I'm going to find this new really awesome series on Netflix. And you know what? I need to lay down right now and put on maybe some biurnal beats or a nice 432, whatever. And I need to lay here and consciously say to myself, what's going, close, down, close my eyes. What's going on right now? Okay, so where do you notice that? How do you notice that? What would it be like just to have that, just be with that right now? And okay, I'm just going to allow that part of my body to relax. Like, or all of those um, really amazing little, you know, exercises that we do to regulate ourselves, you know, to collect ourselves, to to soothe ourselves. It's very, very different than, you know, escaping or you know numbing or dissociating which is totally fine too if that's what you want to do is good yeah i mean this is a a good segue but i know you said you had one more thing it, it can wait i think it, yeah i think it'll come up it later can wait. Well, i mean there's there's a lot of places i wanted to go with what you said and, and uh, again before i actually segue into you know medicine healing and journeying the way that you've talked about somatic healing almost sounds like it has been part of the medical community for a long time it just doesn't nece didn't necessarily trickle down into the mainstream or talked about component of that community is that am i hearing that correctly where this idea of somatic healing this idea of an understanding of journeying was always there but like when i went to my high school counselor they didn't tell me to go for a journey they yeah. just asked me a bunch of questions you yeah. know and then when i went to an actual counselor that didn't happen either. It was just, again, very direct, too direct. You know, you ask a question, they ask a question, I answer a question. They jot something down on their paper. 
And so what you're talking about in, that you saw, I never experienced. I don't know if you did when you journeying in your counseling and different things like that as a, oh, as a younger no, person. Not, no. So was it, is it, is it newly, is it newly accepted or was it always there in the mix of things that we, th- we knew helped people heal? Am I, I'm asking this question correctly. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I think when we talk about therapy, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the roots of therapy, like Freud, yeah. you know, young and those kinds of things. And they're all mind centered, like Rogerian therapy, talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Everybody thought that we could figure things out with our mind. If we go, we talk about it, and there's a place for it. Like uh, even many of the therapies that are more about emotions, right? But I think the difference is that we're coming now down into the body. And I think that this is just part of like the deconstruction of the patriarchy because the patriarchy is all about the mind, right? It's all about like we can analyze and we can fix it. We can, you know, we can use our brain. It's all about the brain. The brain is the problem. And yet, you know, you can't separate the mind from the body. Wait, you're telling me that the mind and the body aren't separate? <laughs> Imagine that. Oh, you're getting cheeky. Sweet ways for But I think that this is the thing. So we have these roots. I mean, psychotherapy hasn't been around for that long, you know. And I think that Carl Jung, that's why I think that that, that experience, that spontaneous experience happened to me because it was in that setting with a Jungian therapist and Jung is all about the collective unconscious and about symbology and spirituality and spirit and archetypes, right? Mm. And so I think that this somatic piece about coming down into the body is like the next piece because, you know, what I have learned as, you know, a somatic counsellor is that I, I can bypass all the talk and... The beauty of what I love most about somatic work is that, you know, often I will get people come to me, they've already done a lot of therapy. They know the story. They know the trauma. They've had their tears about it, but they're still reacting. They're like, I still have intrusive thoughts. I still have a heightened startle response. Uh, You know, there's all these things going on, right, on a physical level. And they come in or they'll, they'll, we'll have a chat, you know, a little connection call first. And they'll say, you know, I guess I'm going to have to come there and tell you my story. I'm like, actually, you don't have to tell me your story. And I don't want you to tell me the story of your trauma. Because every time you tell that story of your trauma, you're running that whole neural procedure all over again. Your, your, my, your nervous system doesn't know the difference between real and imagined, so every time you tell that story, you go to a new therapist and you tell the story, in many ways you're re-traumatizing yourself. Hmm. So people can come in to a session and I'll, you know, how are you doing today? And they're like, yeah, I'm having, I've been having these, you know, intrusive thoughts. They don't need to tell me anything about it. I can say to them, what are you noticing right now? Mm. What happens for you just at the thought, just in telling me that, what are you noticing that's going on? And we can work our way through that and they can get some regulation happening. That's really fascinating. And I had, I don't know why I'd never connected the dots on that. Me neither, um, actually. Because I have a number of friends, men, 40s, 50s, who probably, you know, multiple divorces or different things like that. And and they, they ask me and they will, you know, they're, they're curious about some plant medicine and these yeah. things. But 
and there's two camps. One camp is, I don't want to know. I do not want to go down there. I don't want to know. I'll, I'll just keep cruising through. I've got a formula that blocks out as much as I can, and I'll just keep <laughs> cruising. And then the other one goes to, I want to know, but I'm not ready, and, and they get worried about the woo-woo side of it and this and that. But but what's interesting is that first that first camp, it sounds like the somatic piece is a way of approaching that without even going down there. Just it is. It's fantastic. And what I love because I now I like weave together the microdosing, the somatic and the animist journeying in all of it together. So the beauty of microdosing, um, particularly with psilocybin is it can just cut off a little bit of that ego default mode network that does all that work to like keep the, you know, keep up the armor kind of thing. And then um, if they know that they don't have to talk about something and we can just work with the body, then, oh my God, like so much can happen so quickly. And then invariably, like, you know, quite often when people are getting into a place, because in somatic work, what we're wanting to do is we're also wanting to bring in resource. So let's say, for example, okay, I'll give you an example. (laughs) I'm just, I'm like, ooh, should I give this example? But let's say, for example, you have a guy that was really bullied, right? And he doesn't really want to talk about it or whatever. And let's say he, you know, he's microdosing before his session comes to the session so he's just a little bit softer and then I say to him you know what are you noticing that's going on Um, we do some regular you know a bit of work around you know the vulnerable experiences or the activation that he's having in his nervous system and I get a sense in that like it would really help him if he had some kind of resource if he had something or or if he's just feeling so freaking angry and he does not know what to do with what's going on in his nervous system so if i said to him something like if you could be any animal in this moment what would you be mm. and he might say you know i i'd be a big ass lion yeah and i go great what do you notice happening in your body as you imagine being a lion? And if you were a lion, what would you, you know, what do you think you might like to do to those people that hurt you? Right? And he might be like, and then I would say to him, actually, rather than tell me, why don't you imagine doing that right now? Mm-hmm. Right? And you can see in a person's body, and I've seen this in, in men, like the amount of heat that's moving through their body, the jaw clenching, the salivating, right? Because revenge is part of resolution. It's just a healthier way of doing it than like getting, you know, actual revenge, a gun and going down to a mall, <laughs> the, the right? Imagination part, the, <laughs> right? Because yeah. the imagination is doing the work with the nervous system, right? Because well, the almost. mind and the body don't actually know the difference between imagining it versus acting it. Exactly, and, and that, then that brings us back to the point about. The, the incel, the, the young angry man, which is the, the movie is the imagination effectively. It's allowing them to play that out. Yeah, because they're having that response. But just one more thing about yeah. that. So if I was working with that guy, I might say to him, you know, like when you leave here, I want you to think about maybe changing your wallpaper on your phone to a lion. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you want to go home and just create a little space for yourself. I probably wouldn't use the word altar, a little space for yourself where... Maybe you put a picture of a lion and a candle. Yeah. And so you look at that and remember, right? And that is calling in 
the medicine of Lion on a spiritual level to support him with his healing. It is spiritual healing. Mm-hmm. It's just in disguise. <laughs> yeah. Do you think we'll ever be ready for it not to be in disguise? <laughs> I think it's definitely, it's totally happening already. It's kind of happening. It is happening, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, I, I'm trying to imagine what the world is like when, when like a lot of people are really, because, because it's still a bit closeted. I have a lot yeah. of friends who have, you know, th- these are, we're talking very successful. We're even talking successful coaches and, and d- 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 these types of people who have been helping people heal and have just found yeah. this new spiritual angle to it, but they're still very shy. For sure. And right. I think, I think this is why so many men are attracted to psychedelics because you can go and be in the ceremony and be in the dark and have your feelings and nobody really knows. However, I think that the integration is the most important part of the ceremony, right? I always say 20% ceremony, 80% integration. And a lot of that integration can be somatic. And that's where the massive, massive changes occur. But, you know, the world of psychedelics, if you're not careful, it can actually just build up your spiritual ego. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I've right. absolutely seen that already. Yeah, and it's. And I'm not trying to beat this thing to death, but it's the same thing as the. It's the movie. It's if you don't integrate the energy that you just experienced, you've just you're just getting a hit. Yeah, it's just a hit. It's not. And I've been very, maybe too guarded against that with my own experiences with psychedelics. Like mm-hmm. very much not. I know people who go monthly and this and that, and and I was like, well, I can see myself being very egoic about this if I, oh yeah, you know. Yeah, you, there's you, a <laughs> chest puffing of like, oh yeah, you haven't been to a ceremony since you've been to, yeah, I've sat with ayahuasca 250,000 times. Said, even wait, wait. once, even when I hear myself say that I've sat with <laughs> ayahuasca once, yeah, and, and someone asks me, and I just get like a shot of proudness, like proud adrenaline. I'm like, dude, I gotta watch that. <laughs> well, I mean, that felt good, but I gotta watch that. Then right? you need to come back then. <laughs> yeah, right, like, tell yeah, me more about that. Sure, I'll tell you more. You need to do that. more ceremony then. <laughs> oh, of course. No, within I, reason, but yeah. No, and, it's, and honestly, like we just, we had a kid and life gets very busy. And so it's just like seasons of our, our ability to really step into that or, or, you know, they're just, they're seasons. I guess that's the simple way of saying it. We've had to, and carve out time, which we've done recently for next week. Yeah. Not next week when this comes out, but next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Next Saturday. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I think though? I think that, I think that it is really important that people do listen to the seasons in their life. That is, that is a very powerful statement that you just made. Oh, my ego is going again. You'll just hear my words coming out. Yeah. Of that. That's all I hear. <laughs> it's also true. Yeah. I think because because people do get into the habit of just going back to the medicine ceremony, like you know, over and over and over again. And like, I'm not. I think it's different for everyone, and therefore, I, you know, I'm definitely not the expert on this, like by any means. But when I do think about, for example. Like the story of Maria Sabina, right? Who was kind of like the doorway in many ways to, you know, psychedelics in the West, right? And you know Maria Sabina, right? I don't. Maria Sabina is a Mexican Mazatec healer, 
uh, Kurundera and her father and her grandfather um, worked with um, the mushrooms in these healing ceremonies called the Valida. The Valida, probably haven't pronounced it, sorry, uh, pro- properly. But And this is what she did. She was her community healer. And so people would come to her for healing and take the mushrooms. And she would take the mushrooms and sing particular healing songs that would be known in the Amazon as Icaros and do spiritual healing work with them. And that's what she did. And then it was Richard Wasson. I think he was a mycologist and anthropologist, mycologist and his wife. I don't know if they stumbled across this. And there's a word that they use called bioappropriation, but an extraction, but they basically went and had this experience and then went back and then they wrote this article in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, you've got like John Lennon and Bob Dylan down with Marie Sabina and that, you know, she died poor and, you know, her her people in her village were angry with her. So it wasn't, you know, good experience, but it did open us up to, you know, um, psychedelics. It's just that, you know, as always with psychedelics, so many of them come from uh, indigenous cultures and like uh, now as the white you know as the western world moves in you know it's just like yeah the company's on the tsx and we're you know extracting the psilocybin out of the mushroom and i really wanted to talk about that mm-hmm. and, and i and well, let's go there i just wanted to address something that Jana said about me using your words and <laughs> And this is this is true. It's not a bad thing. No, no, no. I absolutely not. This is a this is this is a gift that you give me, and you give me through her because <laughs> you're taking Angela's apprenticeship course, and so you're you're always learning and you're always in it. And then at the end of, I think they're Wednesday nights or whatever, and we get to chat about what it was that you went through, and you're always vibing, like hard, um, hard, <laughs> yeah. And I just, I get this, like, this healing and and all of these just, like, unexpected benefits just because I'm your your partner and, and I get to see that and, and learn from you every time. And they're just nuggets. It's not like I got the whole, I'm not taking your course for free. So I, I'm not, like, sidelining your course a little bit. It makes my heart sing. It makes my heart sing to know that is happening. It's true. And yeah. and this is, and, and your words start to become, but it's not... So I'm not, it's not happening like, oh, I'm, that's a good one. Seasons. I got to use seasons, <laughs> right? It just, it just is like becoming. And that's really interesting where when couples are on healing, one of them's on a healing journey. Often they can. The other one's joining them. The other one's joining unintentionally. Unknowing. Yeah, well, right? of course. I mean, we're, we're all connected. You know, I mean, if I pray for my mom, I'm praying for myself, right? Yeah. So. Of course, you know, Jenna coming and taking the apprenticeship, of course, like she's like the hearth of your family. So everybody is going to be in the the ripple waves of mm-hmm. her, you know, her experience. It just, you know, you guys share an energy bubble. So you're going to pick it up via osmosis. Even if she doesn't say anything, you're going to pick it up, which and, is great. And you see this, this osmosis, that was the word. I write that down. I use that for my next one. It's good. <laughs> one. No, no, no. The, uh, the, so sometimes our one of our daughters will have a breakdown, but that breakdown is a release, mm-hmm. and it's all this it's osmosis all, yeah, it's all of, your, of a large part of your 
you're actively in it, right? A lot mm-hmm. of the time when you're in this course. And I think that we didn't know, and the point I'm making is we didn't know to associate the breakdown that that child was having mm. as release mm. as opposed to bad behavior, mm. right? Yeah. And and so putting in the language and the framework, which is is the benefit of your course, your teachings, and just learning more about it, mm. And then it just, it changes the whole dynamic. Because when, when your kid is having a breakdown, you just hold them and they just soften over time. Like the tantrum, the pounding, the hard energy starts to soften, soften, soften. It's like, that was so worthwhile versus like, oh, I can't, she doesn't do that again. <laughs> it's right? so beautiful because, what's his name? God, attachment guy. But he talks about tears of futility, right? Mm. We must have our children move to tears of futility. Oh, my God. Because if they don't, if they can't get to the tears of futility. Are you talking about Gordon Newfeld? Yeah, Gordon Newfeld. If they can't get there, like, then they grow up to be these adults that, like, Yeah, yeah, I never cried. I remember the last time I cried. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that was was an old parlance of 30, 40 years ago, right? Uh, Tears are bad. mm -hmm. But I guess energetically speaking, and we talk about, I, the mysticism, the spirituality of it all, these things always happen in and around the halo of the of a class. Mm. They don't. It's not every class. Something mm. you know, so a child doesn't break. But when Jana does big work, that there's always a halo around that energy yeah. that we all feel and what we do with it. Mm-hmm. And so, the point I'm making is that energy is real. If we go back to saying like even if you don't attach meaning to the hummingbird mm. you can still gain something you can still learn something you can still have a present moment it's the same thing so it's like you don't have to attach that that the that something came down and was present you just have to say that obviously that energy is real and if i'm really tapped into it then i understand it better and i can i can see why i'm reacting or why this you know these things are happening and i and i, I guess that's been easier for us, I think, me for sure, since we moved back to nature. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I know not everybody can do that. Mm-hmm. And we took a really big leap and, like, it was very hard for us to do. Mm-hmm. But we did it. Mm-hmm. And that opened a lot more doorways. It allowed more opportunity yeah. to see it and to be present better. Yeah, I think so. And I I think because when you're living closer to nature, your whole being, your whole bubble is is having an experience, right? So I think that there are so many parts to having a strong spiritual practice. You know, like I'm always saying in classes, like, okay, now we're going to do this, but first let me tell you why we're going to do it. You know, so that people are not just doing things and not knowing why they're doing it. So you have to have the knowledge and then you have to have the practice. So you practice what you're doing and then you get to have the experience. Mm-hmm. And the experience is, is, you know, is the key because that is the osmosis. That's when it's landing in your body, you know. So it's, um, it's beautiful to hear. It's beautiful to hear that. I just, I, I hope so much, like especially after the last, three, four years, I just, that, that people realize that that osmosis and that relationship with us in nature, but with us and each other is so real. And like how we show up energetically to the workplace, 
to the Zoom call. Your calls are Zoom calls, mm-hmm. and yet there's still that effect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That that it would that when we tap into that, we will really see each other differently, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and I would love if I can hope for one thing other than the healing of people is just over as this makes its way more and more into our lives mm. is that we are a lot gentler with each other as a result of being more aware of each other's energy going into these every single day mm. in rush hour. Yeah. You know, and we rush- become, we become more responsible, right? We become more responsible and more masterful in the way that we handle our energy because when masterful you- of handling our like that. Yeah, because when you understand about energy and how to transform your energy, how to clean your energy, how to, then you actually can become a harmonizing agent. Like the I'm, ripple effects. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really believe in like, you know, yes, y- you can put up an energy shield or a protection shield, but honestly, it's like a lifeboat. Like you can't do that all day every day. You you're yeah. exa- you're exhausted. And we are interconnected, so you need to learn. Everybody, I think, needs to learn to become masterful um, about because there's so much rhetoric in like the the like the new age or spiritual world of like I stay away from toxic people. You know, I don't want to be around negative people. It's just like fuck, man. That's life. Like yeah. people <laughs> go through things. People go through hard times. Like the key is that you can sit with somebody that maybe they're a little bit funky energetically. And that ultimately, wouldn't it be amazing if you could just allow that energy to move through you and transform and then, you know, Mother Earth will eat it up as ambrosia and that person's going to feel better after. Because they need somebody too. Totally, right? Right. And that that we're all just being harmonizing agents out there in the world, you know. I mean, I do think, you know, we've talked a bit about psychedelics. I do think this is one of the... One of the wonderful things about psychedelics when they are combined, you know, with ceremony and support. And I think that really what they do is they kind of force us out of that ego way of being. They force, they force us out of that armor. They, they allow us to be vulnerable. Um, I mean, I have learned over the years that, that, that the medicine and the facilitator are so hand in hand you know, because I've sat in different ceremonies with different facilitators and the experience in my body is the same with the plant medicine, but the, but the vibration of that experience or the journey that I go on is different because it's hand in hand with the facilitator, mm-hmm. right? So I know when I'm supporting people in their journeys, like it, it is my nature to, I am a pretty sweet person. I used to like try to not be that way. I used to try to not be like so soft because the world tells me that's a bad thing, but it's actually just my nature. So, you know, p- people do uh, allow themselves to be vulnerable. They do give themselves like the absolute gift of falling apart oh my God, it's such a relief for people to fall apart. And that's why I think, you know, these medicines in the right hands and in the right way with experience and with, you know, all the things that we want to have in place can be like incredibly life-changing. It doesn't mean you have to go to ceremony every week. You might go to a ceremony and then you got a year with that one to go and practice falling apart. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think about microdosing and how it's being used right now? Yeah, 
I, I actually think that microdosing is great. You know, I think it's wonderful. I, I've been through periods myself where, you know, I, I've been diagnosed with ADHD and I went through a period of microdosing. I was like, oh man, this is not helping me. Maybe microdosing psilocybin, you know, or I didn't get my dose right or the protocol wasn't right for me or whatever. But I think that potentially, oh my God, I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope around this because microdosing done consciously and intentionally with ritual as almost like a spiritual supplement for some people I think is amazing. And I think for people who have, you know, for example, depression, some anxiety, but sometimes um, microdosing can actually exacerbate anxiety, so it's not the best. But I, I kind of actually have this feeling that the plants are coming to save us, mm-hmm. right? That we are in a not in a good place, our species is not in a good place, and that these wise teachers who have been helping civilizations all around the world for hundreds of thousands of years are saying, okay, you people, like, mm-hmm. you need help. And, um, you know, and I'm torn because on the one side of it, I was in my own, um, in my own medicine journey not, not long ago and mushrooms said to me, oh God, like now they're in a lab extracting the psilocybin from the whole mushroom. And, and um, the medicine was saying to me, you know, they're just taking my heart. They're not taking the whole body. You need all of me to get all of the effect. You need the cap, you need the body, you need the mycelium right? Because that medicine is the medicine of connection. Not only do we learn to be connected with nature, but we're learning how to connect ourselves with all the parts of ourself, all the parts of our souls, all, all of our parts, our child self, our wounded child, our, you know, our exiled adolescent, um, and then learning to connect our heart with our mind, you know, or our, our womb and our heart and our mind, like how all of these multiple intelligences that we are are all interconnected. So I, I really think that, you know, why I am such an advocate for um, the psychedelic medicines, for the plant medicine teachers in the right hands, respecting the indigenous roots that they may come from, I think that I think that we could be in for some really good evolution. I really do. Because I mean, even when I look at back on the war on drugs, right? Because there were, you know, the world of psychedelics was exploding. And I don't know if I heard this somewhere or in my own mind, I thought to myself, yeah, like that was around like Vietnam War mm-hmm. time, right? Well, like how do you get hundreds of thousands of men to go to war? if they're all taking LSD or magic mushrooms, they're like, hey, man, but we're connected. I'm not going to go there and kill somebody that I don't even know. What has it got to do with me? Yeah. Of course you're going to have a war on drugs and criminalize everything so that these people can't, you know. It's all uh, online. Right? Yeah. yeah. The timing of it, interestingly, events and those I, things I, I are heard interesting. And I, have, I haven't verified it yet, but I had heard that uh, they were talking about bringing back the draft in the United States oh, because numbers are... That's what I said. Right? Numbers are... <laughs> are dwindling and, and so we're you know now you're talking about again that medicine softens you and and and, and opens your mind to to like whoa wait a second right yeah. but to the point you made about you know so 
ultimately, it will be the state, not the United States, the state, the government that sets what is allowed. You know, pharma has already, I think for the first time, kind of said, yeah, like, this is... This is a go. Yeah, we can make some money out yeah. of it. And they, they've, kind of, <laughs> they've kind of put out a put out a little statement, a paper that says, you know, we think this is going to work. And it's like, you mean the thing that's been working for 100,000 years <laughs> decided it's going to work? Yeah. But how do we get to a place if that those guardrails are there where people get the full mother yeah. mushroom or... or Sorry, grandmother mushroom. I, I well, for I, me, it's grandmother. Right, right, for you, it's grandmother. Versus just the synthesized version of 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 it. Like, how do we still then create an environment where this is, this is? And it's not just the psychiatrists who get to be the ones who decide, mm-hmm. because then we're just we're just right back into the system, right? Mm-hmm. And psilocybin. Is, is it different than Adderall in that mm. in that regard? Mm. Without the ceremony, without the intentionality, the intentionality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean. And can you just talk to that? Yeah, I mean, first start is like, I'm not a <laughs> like people are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, right. And they've been doing it forever. Like, so hello, you can't stop somebody from going out into their paddock and picking some magic mushrooms and taking them. It's just not going to happen. So. And in honest, in all honesty, I'm not opposed to kind of the guardrails and the sort of the legal processes and this kind of thing. I mean, I think that there is a place for bureaucracy. I don't think the bureaucracy can keep up with shit. Like it can't keep up with AI, which is, you know. But I think that... It certainly can't. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that there is, I think there is a place for it because... the the I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story and that will help. The reason that I ended up going to my first um, plant medicine ceremony is because in my healing practice, I had a bunch of women coming to see me who had been sexually violated in plant plant medicine ceremony, either by facilitators or by male helpers. And so I was doing somatic work with them and spiritual healing work with them. And... And I was, I was 20 years clean and sober at that point, so I had my own views about, oh, I was afraid, right, to be taking a substance that was going to alter me. But a bunch of things fell into place, and I thought, God, I wonder if I need to go and have this ceremony in order to really understand what they've been through. And then I had a series of dreams, and then I ended up in my first ceremony. And this is why I'm sort of, I'm kind of sort of not opposed, because, you know, there's a lot of shit that goes down out there. Like there's those women, there's a client that I had who committed suicide. He was coming to me for integration. He committed suicide because he had mental health staff and the people who were facilitating his ceremonies were not equipped to handle that. Um, recently there was another death here and people don't talk about any of this stuff. You don't hear it out there, right? But there's a reason why there needs to be some safety measures about that. There's a reason why people need to be trained in doing it. Like, you know, I've heard of people, you know, they go down to Peru, they go to, you know, the ayahuasca, whatever, for three weeks or three months or whatever. They haven't done their own work. They don't have any training in sort of counseling or healing or trauma-informed anything. And the next thing you know, they're leading ayahuasca ceremonies. Like, 
how, do they know like how do they know how to screen? What if someone has a psychotic break, mm-hmm. even in the ceremony or after the ceremony? Like what if like it's um, the people in plant medicine ceremony are in a very very vulnerable position. Yeah. How do we? How do we? I, I hear what you're saying, and I mean that. That's I don't want to necessarily want to use the word prolific, but abuse, uh, guru abuse has been around for a long time. Yeah. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, that's a very real thing. Abuse of power mm-hmm. really. Um, so inside, whether it's an animist or whether it's a shaman or whether it's any of the lineages that you would study from, does it, would that, in, like, I'm trying to understand or delineate between the practical guardrails that are going to come yeah. top down from the state versus those that have been passed on for hundreds of years. Mm. Is it not possible for someone to to know these things who's never stepped foot in a classroom and, yeah. and you know, learned it in just the jungle or... Yep. A hundred percent. Like it's not about academic learning for Mm -hmm. sure. I mean, that is the, that's the education structure within our culture. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's definitely not like you don't have to have like letters after your name to be a really good, safe, trauma-informed healer. I think what we're missing in our culture is we don't have elders, you know, and we live in a culture, you know, I have a friend who does jujitsu and one day we were talking about like the path of plant medicine and the path of like um, animism and those kinds of things. And he said to me, yeah, he said like, you know, I didn't go to my first jujitsu thing, you know, as a white belt and expect to be a black belt. Like I had to earn all of those things. I had to go there. There's a ritual around every class where you bow to your masters, you know, and where you have to earn that belt. We don't have that in the world of the like spiritual healing, right? That's I mean, it, yeah. that's the scary part of it, right? I, I, that's kind of trickled into everything. Yeah, students know more than teachers. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's just there's an that's the entitlement. It is, you know, and we're we're not used to people saying no to us, and we're not used to delayed gratification. I mean, any time I've ever had a falling out with student, um, and there's been many, is because I've said no. I'm like, I know from my experience that th- this this person, that there's another reason for this and that there's not humility involved. And, you know, people do not, do not like hearing s- somebody say no. And honestly, as a woman, that's been harder because if I was a male leader, um, that would be accepted much more easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do, I don't want to say how do we protect ourselves, but, you know, we're in, the world of social media healers it's prolific that that's a place you can use that word for sure yeah people who've been to one two ceremonies mm. people who microdose are telling their friends what dosage they take mm. and yeah lo and behold now their friend is taking that yeah. somewhere along that line somebody's gonna you know not yeah. taking the right dose for them maybe all of them right and so how like but it's, it's a social contagion thing in a positive and negative way. Yeah, for right? sure. How, how, how does somebody separate, you know, the wheat yeah. from the chaff? Is that the expression? Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I think it is important. I think, I mean, this is 
this is oh god another reason why I love this this sort of spiritual part of animism and and earth medicine is because you can stay connected to your your uh, instinctual self right because people's instincts are not they're dulled you know they're not you got to have street smarts and it's just the same as like I remember when my kid was growing up and like the internet was happening and you know the online world and Rather than like blocking and doing all of the, the things, I mean, we had the parental controls and stuff, but it's about education, right? I have this blog on my website. There's something like 28 questions to ask yourself if you're thinking about doing plant medicine, you know, and there are questions on there about like, why do you want to do this? And these are now the questions that you need to ask the person that you're thinking about doing, a, you know, a plant medicine ceremony about like, What's your background? Who's your teachers? What's in the brew? Where did you get that recipe? How much do I take? Do I have a say in the dosage? Right? All of these kinds of things. So I think people, it is really just about education. And there, there's a plethora of medicines. L- like you end up going to an ayahuasca ceremony or something, and then next thing you know, there's you're licking frogs. You know, and... Yeah, and, having and, a shot of ketamine. Yeah. Right, and, and, and so it's, it's coming at us very fast. Yeah, it right? is, it's it is. Very, very fast. And yeah. I guess, yeah, I mean, it's like AI, it's going to it's gonna have some darkness that comes with the light, I think. Right? Always. I mean, I think it's like, every, it's like everything. It's like when television came, like it's, you know, I think it's just, you know, we have to be wise and we, we have to use our instincts. We have to use our spidey senses. Like when I went to my first plant medicine retreat, it was a retreat for a whole weekend, I was very clear within myself that if I got there and I didn't feel, like if I wasn't feeling it, I wasn't going to take the medicine. Yeah. I felt totally fine by that, you know. And I think we, it's also really about educating our kids, you know, and talking about psychedelics, even introducing psychedelics, you know, um, because I know in other cultures, um, under the safety of the family, you know, in a really good way, psychedelics are introduced, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe the two of you could just talk a little bit about the experience of ceremony, Mm -hmm. Um, because to your point, like, maybe all their spidey senses are going off because... They have no idea what to expect, yeah, right? Yeah. And I, I, I know that's somewhat true for me. And and this goes to that other camp of the the person I was talking the two people I was talking about in the beginning where they're interested, but there's so many unknowns that they just can't mm. get there. And so uh, you know, whichever way you want to go about it, um, mm. you could talk a little bit about what that's what that like and this idea of you know, what it's like to be shattered mm. and why that isn't a terrifying thing necessarily. Mm. You know, you want to just let her rip? <laughs> um, I think what comes to mind when I heard you say that was something that happens to me before every ceremony, before it's happened, usually the week or two before. And what I notice is there's little trickles of things that come in. So things that I'm going to face mm. or things that are um, already working through me integrating in my life and messages that I'll get that are going to be a part of my ceremony in a way. And I think um, 
one thing that is always fearful is the ego. So sometimes part of the journey is the surrender. So it's knowing that, yes, things are going to fall away. Yes, you may break, but that that is a part of your individual process. I mean, sometimes there hasn't been any breakdown. Sometimes it's can be joyous and, and really like revolutionary. So um, I know going into ceremony, whatever is going to come that needs to come, comes. And I think being open to that is a really big step for anybody who feels called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we talk a lot in um, the world at the moment, um, in mainstream about set and setting, right? And set and setting for me is like protocol and ceremony <laughs> is how I would language that. I think that... Two words I never thought would go... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but I think... It that, makes sense. Yeah, it's like yeah. the preparation and the integration of the yeah. book ends, right? And then the ceremony is in the middle. And I think that I know, you know, in the way that I hold space for people that a lot of that work is in the beginning about talking about the container, mm-hmm. right? And often if I'm just you know, chatting with someone who's curious about medicine ceremony, you know, I always say to them, like, well, this is kind of what you can expect, right? Is that everybody does ceremony differently, whether you're sitting or you're laying down or whatever. But generally, you know, in the ceremonies, when I've helped people and when I've been in ceremonies with my teachers, um, there's always that easing in, There's always lots of communication beforehand about, hey, this is what you're going to need. This is how you can best take care of yourself. Like even down to like make sure you wear layered clothing because one minute you might be cold, the next minute you might be warm. Like you might like to bring your own blanket because when you're vulnerable, you like things that kind of maybe smell familiar, right? Like it's these textures, all these kinds of things that you can take care of your nervous system. And then the protocol when you're in a group of people and you're going to be vulnerable, there's got to be protocol because the protocol creates the container. So the stronger the protocol and the deeper the protocol, the deeper that people can go, Mm -hmm. right? So a protocol of like, for example, you know, we're going to hold a noble silence here. You're not going to be talking to your neighbors. You know, if somebody's having a process, we're going to let them have it. Like if somebody's crying, then they're crying. It's not you. This is not about you going to fix them. This is about you noticing that you have the urge to go and fix them, <laughs> or you noticing that you're pissed at me that I'm not going to fix them, right? <laughs> and that's really that's the piece about the protocol, you know, about yes, get up and go to the bathroom if you need a hand. This is what's there. Um, so I think that that piece, what we're doing with protocol, is we're giving the nervous system some upfront right it's like i remember years ago we were taking my daughter to euro disney in paris and she was about seven or eight and we really wanted to surprise her we wanted to like get to paris and go by the way we're going to euro (laughs) disney but i was taking my somatic training at the time and my teacher said to me you actually might want to let her know now. And I'm like, well, why? And she said, because her nervous system can have all that joy and excitement of planning. Mm. Oh, are we going to go here? Can we get on the internet? Can I look it up? Can I see pictures? Does that mean? So it's like, 
oh, yeah, I don't want to rob her of that. So it's kind of the same when you get, you know, you know, the, the teachings during the protocol about what, what you might expect, the nervous system's like, oh, okay, okay. So then when you're in it, you're like, oh yeah, there's that thing that that person said that that might happen and that's happening. Okay, well, I can just, I'm just gonna lean into this and let go, it's okay, right? Mm-hmm. Surrender to the medicine, return to your breath, whatever it is, you mm. know? What about, um, well, two things. The one, a lot of people say to me, well, I'd do it, but I'd have to do it alone with just the, sh- the shaman or the animus. Yeah. What ha- what is what happens in the group that makes that a worthwhile, even if it's your first ceremony yeah. experience? I think that both are as important as the other. Right. Okay. I think that doing a one-on-one ceremony with a facilitator is is really important for some people. Yeah. I think it's really really good. You know, some people. You know, I think it's just our nature. Everybody's different. And for some people, they can just let go more in their space. I can imagine. And so a lot of people start one-on-one and then move to the group. Yeah. Um, a lot of people start microdosing and then, you know, are like, yeah, I think maybe I'm ready for, yeah. you know. Um, and I will just say a little disclaimer as we talk about all of this because, like, you know, psilocybin and other, you know, plant medicines, they are like schedule three, you know, drugs, right? They are illegal. So as I talk about this, like, you know, just to let you know, I never ever supply any of these things. It's just, you know, a form of harm reduction where, you know, they're gonna do what they're gonna do, so may as well do it safely, mm-hmm. right? So so anyway, yeah, so there is there is that bonus of like, getting a sense of with microdosing, which is, you know, a lot of people use this term subperceptual that comes from James Fetterman, but he actually says that he doesn't know if that's correct term. He would say it's sub hallucinogenic. You're not, you, you can, when you microdose, you feel slightly enhanced, right? But you're not having visuals, right? You're not, you're not like, oh my God, there's so much I have to lay down and go in there, you know? (laughs) Um, And so the good thing about microdosing is it kind of, introduces this plant medicine to your ecosystem and you can be like oh yeah okay this i'm i'm okay um and then sometimes people like one-on-one because they just need the privacy around being vulnerable and that's totally fine the beauty of the group is that because we are all uh connected there is so much to learn from everybody because mm-hmm. that person is over there having their thing and you're like, oh my God, I totally get that. Or, you know, <laughs> uh, you, it's just so incredibly magical and so much gets validated, you know, and I, I think that that is this beauty of that person's vulnerable and that gives me permission to do that too. That person's crying and therefore I have permission yeah. to cry as well, right? It's the beauty of community in a way that I feel like everybody misses. Yeah, right? It is that. I think particularly, too, when we start to talk about ancestors, you know, sometimes in ceremony we do these, these ceremony in the ceremony for the ancestors. And, oh, man, that just opens a whole other door, mm-hmm. you know, because, I mean, I, I kind of think that all healing work is ancestral healing anyway, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But there's something when you're really consciously doing that. I, I wanted to talk more about that. I wanted to talk about 
and again, this is part part of what makes people uncomfortable and part of what makes it so, I mean, it's magical, I guess, is the songs. Mm. You know, you're a songstress. You sing mm. being in or around nature. Mm. The idea of the land that we're on, all these different components come into play. Mm. And that's where pe- uh, let people's egos get, they get guarded up on the, on the woo side of that. Mm. But how does, you know, let's pretend that's not the case. How does all of that play into mm. become a part of this experience, the well, medicine? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about soul work, yeah. right? And soul work around the world, like think oral cultures, right? They were not writing it down and figuring it out. They were singing, they were dancing, they were storytelling. Those are the medicines of the soul that is... That is what the soul knows, right? So when you're in that place with the medicine, and it doesn't have to be songs, it can be music, it can be a playlist, it can be an instrument, you know? I think one of the things that I did learn from the medicine in a ceremony when I asked, I was like, why the music? <laughs> and, the, and the medicine said to me, I created music because when you're in a vulnerable place, you need the lullaby. (laughs) That the the lullaby was actually the very first song. That that is Mm. how song came into the world was to soothe babies. Mm. So um, when we're in the medicine ceremony and we're vulnerable, you need soothing. So sometimes um, the, the songs or the music are about that. Also, they, you know, they can be... They can be like a river that carries you in the medicine because they kind of distract the ego. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, you know, this is beautiful sound over there and the ego's like, oh, God, okay, I feel okay. Yeah. I don't need to control this moment, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I think in that regard, it's, it's really amazing. And I do think that nature, again, time in nature is a soul medicine. Our mm. soul knows nature. Our soul loves nature, yeah. you know? So I think that th- this work is, it's soul work. Yeah. You know, that's why it's psychedelics, right? It's like, I think, the psyche, the roots of the, the etymology of the word psyche is soul, and delic, it, delic is to make manifest. Mm. So we're doing work where we're manifesting our soul. And when you talk about the terrain of the soul, mm-hmm. what do you mean? What does, like, you know, because I think soul is a word that, gets a lot of labels, mm. a lot of different you know, definitions, and mm. we, and it ends up getting kind of cast over to the side. You talked about in favor of the mind, but mm-hmm. what, what is the terrain of the soul and how does one travel it or experience it? Yeah, well, it's that mythic terrain, right? It's the, it's the river beneath the river. It's like, you know, we're out here living our life, but hello, mm. like, well, I actually did come here for a reason. Oh, yeah, well, why am I here? That thing. And our soul, and this is why I love dream work so much, because our dreams are like a direct line to our souls. When you learn how to work with your dreams, you are receiving direct messages from your soul. Your soul is saying, oh, God, like when you really understand how to work with your dreams, your soul is saying, yeah, no, don't go that, or I'm terrified of that, or like, yes, you're on the right track, keep going. And I think we're in this culture where people are like, like hungry for meaning, Hun- like what is the purpose of my life? How, mm-hmm. like, you know, people are making billions of dollars about trying to fix this problem about the getting the purpose of your life thing. Like where 
it's or you know lead with your heart right it's like i actually don't want to lead with my heart all the time if i like if i was leading with my heart i would be in relationships that are not good for me right? <laughs> so but your soul is your guide because your soul is timeless, it's infinite, it's been around forever, and it will continue after this lifetime is done. done. So um, it's so wise, you know? And and where do you, no, that's not the question. You know, this idea of a lot of people come out of a, of a medicine journey and they, they now have the answer, if, mm-hmm. even if it's only for like a week, mm-hmm. you know, versus approaching it from the standpoint of just, being more comfortable with the question mm-hmm. when you're on the other side of, or uh, not the other side of, a, the other side of a, of, of a ceremony, but in the integration. Mm-hmm. Because that again, is, is it not a trap to say, this gave me the answer. It's, it's really about finding the comfort in just being on that journey. Or, yeah. I mean, medicine, I mean, when you look at, for example, mushrooms, right? What do they do in the woods, right? They grow in the shade. So therefore they teach us about our shadow and Mm. they clean. That's what they do. Like whatever's dying, they're like, okay, we're going to give that a hand and help it decompose. So when we're in, in medicine ceremonies, like all that's really happening is that we're getting a cleaning, cleaning of our like bullshit beliefs we've been carrying around, cleaning of our grief. We're just getting help to clean, to clean us. So I think that when we come out of the medicine ceremony and we're in that integration phase, it, it is really tricky because you're in a heightened place. So I always say to people like, now is not the time to make big decisions. Like now is not the time to like, you know, sell your home and go and build a ayahuasca retreat in the jungle. Like, and you know, like just, just sit with it for like a month, you know? or now is not the time to do this or that, but you feel so inspired because you're clean, right? But I think that, like if somebody said to me, what is the biggest teaching that you have learned from sitting with psychedelics? It is that I have learned how to be in the moment, Mm. in this present moment with my breath, what's happening now, there might be combined with somatic work, but there might be all these things happening in my body. And can I be okay with that? My mind might be racing. Can I sit with that? My heart might be pumping. Can I sit with that? How can I be with this? Can I allow this to move through me? Because I sure as heck know that it's temporary. And that in this moment, if I just allow life to flow through me, you know, life has created me. Life has loved me into being and is living itself through me. Mm-hmm. So how can I be present to that as much as possible? And in those, in those moments, I might have a nanosecond, like a literal, like tiny little blip in there where I'm like, oh yeah, it would be really helpful if I did this, mm. <laughs> you know? I, I love that. And I, I would agree that that's, that, uh, that is one of the most powerful effects it's had for me. Mm-hmm. But it's also helped me reconnect with the magic of life, the magic of nature. And I've wrestled with how to introduce this to the, our kids. 
and even my own relationship with it, right? And I and, and so this is one of the things that I I wanted to chat with you about and jump in whenever you'd like on this, but things like fairies, things like believing in magic. And I don't mean like a magic trick. I mean the fact that maybe maybe all of what we experience living in the natural world is just purely evolution and, and science, or maybe there's a little fairy dust sprinkled into it all. And sometimes when I'm on, uh, not when I'm on in the medicine, but after I've been in the medicine, weeks, months later, you can still kind of see it a little differently. It look that there's a depth to it. And, but then you talk to your, your, you try and tell your daughter, 11 year old who's now no longer a kid. And she's been reading fairy tales her whole life. And now she doesn't believe them. And you're trying to explain to her, well, maybe there is this magic here, mm. but she's gone from like completely in her imagination to completely literal. Mm. Yeah. That's actually <laughs> what I wanted to ask. Yeah. That was the other thing. So one of our daughters, she was like, and I think you knew this about her too. She's just like so connected to the fairies yeah. and it was helped along by her grandmother, mm -hmm. not in the sense of what they are, mm -hmm. but in the sense of what we've been taught in our culture, what fairies are. So they pass notes between each other and there's little fairy houses and, and things. It's different than what I've learned from you mm. and from my ancestry. Mm. Uh, and we decided that we, we needed to tell her mm. that it was different than what we had taught her. Yeah. And, it's, it was like telling a child about Santa mm. and gaining up the courage to have the conversation. And I honestly didn't expect the conversation to go as badly as it did. Oh, She was devastated, like heartbroken, on the floor, went silent, like couldn't say anything. I was so shocked and I felt so bad about it in so many ways because this little person just had so much faith in this. Mm. And it wasn't like a they're not real sort of thing. It was like, it's so different than what we told you. And I'm sorry, but mm. we want to show you what it is like. Mm. And we talked a little bit about history and where the tales came from and how we wanted to explore that more as a family because we were all learning together. Mm. And now she just has it in her mind that, nope, it's not real, nothing, nothing. I'm not even gonna listen to it. It's just in your imagination. And mm. I don't know like what, how we remedy that really because there is so much to say about spirit in that way like nature spirit and mm. and how to honor it and she'll do the actions with me but I can tell that I injured something there well yeah I mean the thing is it it, it could be an and it could be like all of that's real and there's this right mm -hmm. because like I th I think that you know in the fairy you know, in the fairy tales, which are really just like the fairy teachings, right, that have been like a bit twisted over the years, but mm -hmm. they're just wisdom teachings, right, mm -hmm. that are, that they teach us about, like, fairy tales just teach us so much. Like she who runs with wolves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think, I think that as far as the fairies that were kept that were acceptable, yeah. like the little <laughs> cute little fairies, right? Tinkerbell? yeah. I mean, who's to say that they're not real, for starters, right? Mm -hmm. They could have just decided 
You know, some person may have understood the whole world of fairies and be like, well, these little things like cute and acceptable and like, like let's just at least try to keep these, right? <laughs> so it could be that all of that is actually real and true. You could go back to her and say, hey, you know what? We were talking to somebody and you know what we discovered? Like they, they, all of that could be real and true. And we just want to actually add on that all of this could be real and true as well. Yeah. Right? And so that she actually has more. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it just kind of feels like she's, I guess, in an integration process of yeah, it. Like she it's is. like the shock is still. Yeah. What, but what about even for adults? Like what about for a practical yeah. person who's already just turned off the podcast? Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you I mean, know? okay. So I would ask this question about, you know, your question about magic with a question. Yeah. And I would say like, what if you used a different word than magic? Mm. Right? Like, what if you used a word like mystery? Because I think what happens when we're in the shininess after the ceremony and we feel all these connections with the earth, I think what's going on is that, number one, we've had a good cleaning. Number two, the ego is, like, kind of suspended and all of that that programming that comes with that is kind of suspended. And if we, you know, we get a bit of a, a you know, an an ego deflation. And when the ego is deflated, what the ego, you know, what's happening is we're saying, oh yeah, I'm not like the center of the universe. In fact, I am like this speck of sand on a beach. And then from there's the whole beach and then there's the, the whole community and then there's the whole country and then there's the continent and then there's the planet and then there's the universe and then there's, and I'm just a little great. And I think that that is the beauty of it. So when I think about the magic of life, I just think about the mystery of life mm -hmm. and that I, I don't know, like, isn't it, it is maybe that magic is the joy of discovering that Oh my God, who, who would have thought that when the ants do this, that this thing happens there or that, you know, it, because we're small enough to see that things that may otherwise seem insignificant are extremely significant. Yeah. You That's know? so important to connection, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a mystery. Yeah. So even yeah. just like creating more moments where that's possible. Where the mystery is to yeah, and is and is mystery connected to mysticism, like in in terms of the word? Yeah, the word? yeah, like mysticism is like you know when we talk about uh, mysticism, for example, in the Andean Andean traditions, you would have we talk about the the um, the magic and the mysticism. So we always are doing our work with two hands. It's the same. When we're thinking about if we if we want to use gender words, we might say working in a feminine way and a masculine way. So working, you know, with folk healing, for example, when you're doing a healing with someone, you're working with like the magic or the, the feminine flow of energy, the feminine work. But the mysticism would be the why. It's like the knowledge behind why mm. you're doing what you're doing. So um, you're always working with both hands at the same time. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. So I want going on the integration note, Jana's holding a hearth. Mm. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what that is mm. and how. <laughs> Just like a huge question. I know. I'm, I'm like, sorry. <laughs> um, and how, you know, that and, and that we can just 
cultivate this ceremony in our lives and, and, and maybe how that's a part of it. And then I, I would have just kept you here all day if my way, but <laughs> it's all good. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Talk about what it is and medicine and, hearth. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. Well, I have to give you a little, little brief, little background. Please. Yeah. So in 2009, I started to have these visitations from my Irish ancestry, which led me to seven years and five ancestral pilgrimages to that world and just a deep, deep, deep dive into the the old folk healing practices. And during that that period of my life, it was the same time that, you know, I, that I met the plant medicine and the same time that I met my teacher, Don Martin, um, from the Andes in Peru. And, um, and during that time, he was teaching us about the mesa, um, the, which is a Spanish word. So the Quechuan word for the mesa is the misha, right? And there's lots of different, mesa means altar, but misha actually, one of the translations of that from Quechuan means to play. You're playing with the universe. So a mesa or a misha is a, a bundle of mostly stones, but also maybe other little figurines and sacred objects, sacred objects, right? So um, when I was learning about uh, the Misha from Dobratine and he knew that I was doing this work with this Irish cosmovision and these old ways, he said, oh, he understood that kind of there's a lineage that's broken. And, and he said, um, you know, I can show you how to work with this medicine in with your ancestry. So... The tradition of the hearth is really rooted in the, the, the Andean way of working with the mesa. And I call it a hearth because in the old Celtic way, the hearth is like the center of everything. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, one of my elders in Ireland was telling me about some of those old houses and how huge those hearths were in, in the center of, of the house. Like you could walk under them mm -hmm. and everything happened there. You know, all the meals, all the cooking, all the drying of clothes, birthing of babies, you know, storytelling, all the, the nourishment, everything came from the heart or the hearth, which is the center of, of, the, of the home, of the family, of the community. And I love the word hearth because it has the word heart in it. It has the word earth in it, right? So it's like the heart and the earth all together. So... With the practice of working with the medicine hearth, there are, there's, there's two ways of doing this. When you work with a teacher and you go through a process of creating that mesa or that medicine hearth, there is a lot of intentionality around how you come into relationship with those stones, right? Those spirits from particular places and what they're coming to teach you and um, you know, we go in the apprenticeship, we go through a process together to build that. It's kind of like your, it's like your spiritual power spot. Mm. And it's kind of like your iPhone. It has all your connections to the spirit world kind of thing. Um, I and you, prefer it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can use it for like cleaning. You can, you can, you can use it for, for divination. You can use it for receiving wisdom, for protection, for all sorts of things, Right. Um, and it's basically like a council of elders that you have with you that is supporting you on your spiritual path. Now, you know, people can make something like that on their own. 
That's great. The difference of when you're working with somebody is that when I'm working with my medicine hearth, Dom Martin and my teachers have shared their energy and their luminous threads of their lineages with me that I'm carrying in my medicine hearth. So when I pass those on to um, you know people in the apprenticeship to our community, then they're they're connected then to those lineages. Right. It's not just that I'm the teacher. It's that no, no, there's so much more that is holding space for us to do this work. And then from there, you know, as people progress in their practice, um, they will be bringing in, you know, sacred objects, stones, bits and pieces that are a reflection of their work, like Jenna's work as a doula. You know, her medicine health is going to reflect that. There's going to be parts of that in there that's going to reflect that. So then it becomes much more individualized to that person's specific being, to their own unique medicine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if somebody was to just carry something around, mm-hmm. it would they could build their own meaning into it, and, yeah. and it, could, it could connect into their own ancestry, even if they hadn't done it through an apprenticeship. Of yeah, and it just gives comfort. Yeah, I think so. I think I think that it does give give comfort. Comfort. It doesn't have the same kind of like um, energetic traditional roots right. that is that gives it that sort of additional power, I guess, in a way. But yeah, I mean, if you, for example, went back to your ancestral land and in a really good way you left an offering and then, you know, asked for a stone to come to you and you went out on a walk that day mm-hmm. and you were like, yeah, I really would like to have this stone from my ancestral place. And you went on a wor- walk and you took note of what was happening on that walk and then that stone came to you and you learned all about it in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, you could, yeah. That's lovely. Well, I'm so grateful for your time. I, was there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? No? Well, thank you again. That's really good. Where, um, where would you like people to f- come find you? Oh, yeah, just come to my website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come to angelaprida.com is okay. the easiest way. And you can find me on Instagram at Sacred Life Animism and on Facebook at Sacred Life Animism. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there. So we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you, and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others, you know, all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace. Hey, thanks so much for making it to the end of the podcast. I know that my self and of course my guests really appreciate you listening all the way through you know, they put a lot of time into their projects and their ideas and and you know, they're very thoughtful with how they they bring themselves and show up on the show and so i'm really grateful that uh, that you've listened all the way through you know we don't have ads on the show i think i don't think red circles running ads but i wanted to take just a quick second to say that hey if the spirit moves you you know this podcast can be brought to you by some of the wild, fun, wacky, creative things I do. I always try and stay in the practice of creativity, whether that's writing or working on films or uh, just about anything. I, I try and be very diligent that I'm I'm doing it consistently. And so, you know, as a result of that, I put some things out and 
and I'd love for you to check them out. One is uh, Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. That's my book, and you can get it anywhere where books are sold online, like Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or Indigo. And uh, it's the story of my company, Naked Underwear, the first company I started that went from a failed attempt on Dragon's Den, um, your, that's your Shark Tank in America, to the NASDAQ and was eventually divested. And it has a ton of tips and ideas for startups, very practical advice, but it's always also interwoven with my own story, which I think entrepreneurs and creatives and artists can really, uh, would really relate to, uh, you know, has almost 155 ish star, four and a half star reviews. And I think people, if you're going through, you know, a startup needs some motivation, needs some ideas, just want to feel like, Hey, there's a kindred spirit out there. You know, it's a great book to check out. Also, you can check out my blog at joelprimus.com forward slash blog, where I write a couple of blogs a month about a variety of topics, a lot of stuff on fitness, things like how to know when to quit, a lot of personal development, psychedelics, all kinds of things. Everything's written from a personal lens. And, uh, you know, it's just a great way to digest a little bit of hopefully fun and helpful inspiration. And of course, keep checking out this podcast, The Ramble on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever your podcatcher of choice is. Thanks again, and have an awesome day, week, month, whatever it is.